What a conversation. Today, you have the pleasure of getting to know Gretchen Nemecek. Gretchen is kind of a veteran when it comes to the software industry. She is uh, yeah, there or was there for a very long time and also did have a great tenure within SAP, where she also had a great amount of different um, yeah, positions and opportunities to grow. So as you can see, it's not just about having a career path, but furthermore, it's about a career portfolio. In this conversation, we will tackle her journey. So what's the difference between unconscious motivators and intrinsic motivation? Really interesting. Stay tuned and enjoy. Hello and welcome back here at Feeling Terrific. Today I have another very special guest uh, with me. Um, her name is Gretchen. Um, it's also based or thanks to LinkedIn that we both uh, got in contact. So again, LinkedIn is a very powerful platform. And uh, the, today's title is Business is Personal. Why I chose this kind of title, let's see. Um, stay tuned because it's going to be personal. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe a few words um, about Gretchen uh, because before I'm going to hand it over um, to her to make a, kind of a, her own intro. Um, yeah, Gretchen is a founder and the CEO of Opinari. I hope it pr I pronounced it correctly. You did, yeah, I got it right. <laughs> um, so first uh, check, right? Um, yeah, so, so as mentioned today, we will talk about uh, different topics and um, among uh, them, her motivation to found um, Opinari and uh, yeah, what she learned along the way. So I think, uh, yeah, let's get uh, behind those uh, personal points of view, points of views and also motivation and, and uh, stuff like that. So really uh, curious. I'm really curious because uh, we also were planning this for quite a time. And yes. today is the day. Um, yeah, but thank you for your time, Gretchen. And over to you for the first question. Who are okay. you? Fire away. I'm ready. <laughs> Who are you, Gretchen? Over to you. Is that an existential question? <laughs> well, it's very interesting because it's really intent to be kind of an open question. And yes. it's interesting to see how people how people think. answer it. No, that's why I laughed. That's why I thought that could be an existential question. That could be a very practical question. You know, it could be a very data related question. Um, let's see. I'll answer that in the best way I can think of, which is probably a little bit of blend of all of those things. Um, so Gretchen Nemechek, I recently founded uh, my company, Openari, um, which is focused on helping businesses and leaders be the best versions of themselves. And, and I take that very seriously. And it's, it's something that's close to my heart. We'll talk a lot more about it. Um, but I recently founded this company. I am a 25-year-plus veteran of B2B software and spent my years kind of coming up in all of the areas of go-to-market inside businesses. I, my first job out of university was in customer support. Um, I spent, you know, a, at least a couple of years behind the lines, really, you know, taking those late night calls and um, helping customers solve deep technical problems. Uh, and my journey led me through um, a really interesting path to work with our international business partners, which gave me the chance to travel the world and to meet lots of new people and to um, experience how different cultures and different um, environments tax different software systems, predominantly ones that are built in the U.S. Uh, and that's where my fascination and my love of, of all things global business and interaction came into play. And 
Um, and so I, I spent some time in product. I spent some time in product marketing and, and eventually evolved my career into being a lot more far focused on marketing um, and, and then also sales enablement. These are, these are areas that, you know, uh, from a career perspective were very interesting to me. And, and as I, you know, found my way into Germany, which I think we'll get to. Um, I spent some time at SAP and I loved my time there. And, and here I am now. <laughs> yeah, some time. I think it was quite an ex extensive time. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> um, no, uh, regarding uh, the move you just mentioned. So, or maybe before yeah. going uh, to the move, um, it sounds like that you have done quite quite few things, if, if I'm uh, not, not mistaken. Mm -hmm. uh, did you hear about the the wording um, career portfolio? You know, I have been hearing the term career portfolio um, over. You know, it's coming up in some of my circles. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, different way to look at a career. But tell me about what it means to you, and I'll and I can talk about it. I just wanted to. I just wanted to say, don't ask me about the definition, but I can tell you definitely what it's for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, but for example, when when I hear uh, you talking about um, what you've done, right? Mm -hmm. um, it seems that you are you were not, for example, whatsoever years just in marketing, kind of, mm, but, exactly. but also different um, different yeah um, areas of the of a, of a company. Um, and I'm wondering, so for me, for example, as so I, I started as a recruiter back in mm -hmm. 2016 mm -hmm. and for example during this podcast journey kind of i'm much more interested also um, being involved now in employer branding and um, topics right so yes. for me for example it could be also something uh, moving into employer branding and um, one mm -hmm. day and mm -hmm. this is for me for example having a career portfolio so i'm not maybe yes. just just i mean for it depends on the person right but for me, yes. for example, not just being a recruiter and senior recruiter and principal or whatsoever, but mm -hmm. just having a variety of skill set, I would say, which uh, yeah enriches my personal development or my mind or <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. And I think it all, you know, some people set out to do a job, to, to pick a career, and this is their chosen profession, if you will. And, and that's true for a lot of people in, you know, very specific roles, legal careers, um, medicine, et cetera. There's a deep investment in a particular profession. So to shift courses and do something different is, um, it's a high cost of change. It's, a, it's, a, it's a big difference. For me, I would say I never really set out to have a specific profession. Um, when I got my degree in communication, um, I, I was actually intended to go to law school and decided that wasn't for me. I evaluated the life of most of the people I knew who went into the legal profession. And I thought, I don't want to be that person working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week trying to make partner. I'm a very motivated and driven person. And I, I realized early on, and maybe this was my first um, smart moment of self-reflection. I realized that with my personality type, that could be a really dysregulated career for me because I might be so focused on it that everything else falls away. And, and, and it also, that type of environment sort of requires it. So, um, so I chose consciously after leaving university, not to go to law school and also not to go into politics. Those were two paths I was very interested in, in university. And, and I ended up 
meeting this company, this tech company, um, you know, back in California, right as I was leaving university, who had a software product that was very close to one of the things I did all the way through university, which was I was in hospitality. I waited tables. I worked in restaurants and um, hotels. And that was the way that I funded my education. And this software company built technology for that industry. And I knew nothing about computers. That was not my field of expertise. Um, I did a little bit of HTML website stuff in college when it was just coming up. I could age myself or date myself pretty easily there. Um, and I found it interesting, but I had no specific skills or expertise. And when I met this, uh, when I met this company, you know, what I did know was I understood the industry. I understood the buyer and the customer because I'd been in their shoes the whole time. And I also knew that I had what we now call a growth mindset, this openness to learn. I'm sure I don't know how to do that, but I'll learn. And, you know, I found myself in a technical support role, um, which was really having to troubleshoot very complex technology over the phone because we didn't have as much of these, you know, Zoom technology that we had, and um, you know, figuring out how to re-pin Ethernet cables over the phone when you know six months before I had no idea what an Ethernet cable was, um, and so I really just sort of dove in. Let's just say rather unintentionally, and maybe that's not the advice that a lot of people want to hear. Into what ended up being um, my first role, but. I loved it and it was exciting. And, and that role opened me up to other roles. Like I'll, you know, I can just tell you how I got into international business. This is probably a funny story because you're German and I'm American and I now live in Germany, but you know, I was working with some of our customers overseas and they would frequently call into this very small American company sitting in Santa Barbara, California and have difficulties with certain aspects of their software. And nobody who worked beside me could figure out how to call them back. Like literally, this was the, this was the biggest barrier is dialing international country codes was the biggest barrier for people to connect with our overseas customers. So I just dove in. I said, okay, well, I'll figure it out. I'm going to get a hold of these people. They need help. It doesn't matter that they're nine hours ahead or you know seven hours behind if they're in some other country. And I just went for it. And I found a way to be helpful. Right. And it's funny, I just posted on LinkedIn about that today. Just be helpful, add value. And and that's what I did. I said, okay, these people need help. Nobody's helping them. I will figure out how to do it. And very quickly I became the trusted advisor of all of these customers. They said, We don't want to talk to anybody but Gretchen. She's the only one who understands our problems. She's the only one who's willing to help us. And so, you know, I started uncovering their unique requirements and what they needed for software. <laughs> our software didn't accommodate European or non-American date formats. So in America, it's, you know, month, month, day, day, year, 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 um, here, and mostly everywhere else, it's day, day, month, month, year, year, year. And our software and reporting didn't support that. And so, you know, I had to figure out, okay, well, how do we make that work? And so anyway, it's a long way to get to, I, I just opened myself up to opportunity wherever it was and found a way to solve a problem, found a way to be useful and that's how I, I started really being in charge of all of our international customers and partners. And I built that into a business development role. And I found a way to start working with our top tier clients and solving problems. And, you know, then 
that evolved into a product management role because I was the only one who understood our product completely backwards and forwards and ways that other people reimagined it because they had to solve problems in other countries. And so, you know, this customer support role into a business development role into product management, you know, so that's just part of the journey, but it was all because I was just open to trying new things. And like I said, rather unintentionally, but I would say more serendipitously and this concept of career portfolio is, I think, just about like being open to experiences that interest you and excite you and tap into something that, you know, is meaningful to you and being helpful. And, you know, that's that's kind of how it came to be. And and there's, you know, more to the story and in getting into marketing and things like that. But the foundation is what kind of carried me through my whole career, which was find interesting things to do with interesting people, be helpful, you know, find a way to do it in a place that you enjoy it and you know things grow from there and the rest comes kind of automatically yeah. it does it does no i i really liked uh what you just said and uh i think um yeah this or maybe not this but uh, you are quite a good example of uh, having a career portfolio right mm -hmm. and i think maybe um also in this regards is that the title is relative as long as you take it from the right perspective. Isn't Absolutely. It? Yes. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people get hung up on titles and some businesses titles are a form of currency. And, and I don't love that. Sometimes you got to play that game, but, um, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, it, it's how you define yourself that matters. Right. And, and what you, uh, you know, what you attach to your own ideas of who you are. And I think that's an important thing is, you know, some roles force people to, I, to really solely identify with their position or their role as who they are. I think that's a slippery slope and a really dangerous position to be in because everything is temporary and sometimes those things change and then people will find themselves lost. Coming back to your original question, who are you? You know, I'm Gretchen Nemechek. I'm me. I'm the sum total of my experiences. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a pet owner. I like the SUP, my identity. I'm also the founder and CEO of this new company, but my identity is is all of those things combined and yet none of those things at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. And it's very philosophical. So uh, re really great, really great comment. Yeah. Um, and, and you also mentioned uh, in the beginning that, that you grew or yeah, grew into things. How did mm -hmm. you end up in Munich? How did I end up in Munich? Yeah. So that's a great question. So remember I was mentioning that I was managing all these international partners at this company I was working for back in Santa Barbara not long after I left university. Well, I became very close friends with one of the people at um, one of these business partners. And over the years we stayed in touch and, you know, we both since moved on to different roles at different companies, me two or three times over, I think. And, um, but we'd stayed really close. And I think that's the power. That's why I think business is personal is because we create these relationships that have an impact and meaning in our lives. Um, And, you know, she told me this new, this company she had just joined was looking for somebody with my skill set. Um, it was Hybris Gambia in Munich. It's an e-commerce company. Um, it was about 450 people at the time in 2012. And they recruited me to come over and build out product marketing for them. And it was, it was an exciting opportunity. My family and I were at a, a really good crossroads, a unique position to be able to make that leap. It was 
scary and like, thrilling and all of those things bundled up into one, but it was, it was the right time for us. And um, so that's what brought us here. Um, and then Hybris was acquired by SAP a little over a year later after I joined. Um, and so that kicked off a whole sequence of other adventures, <laughs> but we've been here since 2012 and I love it. And you're still smiling. I just want to say. Yeah, most <laughs> days. I mean, not every day, but that's just being real. Okay, <laughs> Today sure. I'm smiling. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, and uh, also when when it comes to that uh, move, what you also just mentioned, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm wondering. So, so you just mentioned that you felt it was the right time for your family mm -hmm. to move, right? Yes. How? I mean, what does it mean? I think it's it's no one thing for any. You can't just like say, okay, these are the right conditions specifically, but I'll, I'll give you some examples. So my husband and I had previously thought about moving overseas for other roles. It was something I'd always wanted to do. I traveled a lot internationally in my previous roles. <clears throat> and I thought this would be exciting. You know, I had this probably fairy tale idea of expat life and what it could be like. And the two times we had tried it before, it wasn't the right time. The move would have been, um, it, You know, in some cases, I would have been really on my own without a big support system, building something that was way outside my comfort zone. In some cases, the, you know, the funding and the backing from the company was, you know, tenuous at best. And it, it just didn't feel right. When this opportunity came along, it was like all the stars aligned. Everything, everything moved in exactly the right way. And I, you know, I, I try not to be too like, Woo woo, or any of those things, but I really, I really do believe that when things are meant to happen, they will happen, and they will happen in the time they're meant to happen. And we may not always see that, but usually when we can reflect back, we go, "Oh, okay, yeah, it was supposed to happen that way." And this was one of those situations where just everything lined up, and the and the the, the way was made clear for us. You know, my husband had a great career in California, and one of the conditions of us moving was that they help us find him a role because he was leaving behind a career. And he's, you know, there's this idea of trailing spouse where a spouse just sort of tags along. That's not him. That's not us. He needed to have purpose as well. Um, and, and they said they would help him find a job. And actually he found a job at, um, at Hybris. They helped him find a job there as well. Um, and a role. And he's, he's now with SAP since, you know, many, many years as well. So it, everything sort of worked out exactly as it was supposed to, you know? So yeah. that's how we knew it was in our gut and just in the, you know, in the fact that things didn't feel hard. We did. It's not that things can't feel hard because I think important things can, but it's whether or not there are multiple, multiple obstacles that are just trying to tell you, this is not the path you're supposed to be on. And that was not the case in this particular situation. If that makes sense. <laughs> it does make sense. And adding uh, adding to uh, your comment uh, you just made regarding uh, self-reflection. So when you self-reflect, how did this relocation, this whole experience, the mm. whole new chapter in your life shape you as a person? In so many ways, it's almost difficult to articulate. I mean, we're different on like little levels and big levels, you know. Um, I, I don't know that I would have founded my own company if I hadn't moved here and taken this role. I mean, in, in my experience as a leader at, at Hybris and then at SAP and the team that I built, the special kind of uh, chemistry experiment that I had there, um, 
that led me to really tap into this passion that I have around leadership and team building in a way that, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have at a different type of company in a different type of role had I stayed where I was. Um, so there's, so there's that aspect to it. Um, I think the other aspect is, you know, we've just, your experiences shape you on a cellular level, even the smallest, smallest experiences. And, and every day of being in a foreign country, um, is a unique experience. You know, in the beginning, certainly things were even more different. I mean, now we mostly understand the language, though I'll never be fluent in German. I think that's perfectly okay. We can um, all switch to German if you want. Uh, yeah, nope, we will. <laughs> we would, it would be a very quiet podcast <laughs> and full of grammatical errors. Um, so, so there's that, I think, you know, our daughter has grown up here. She was four when we moved here and she's um, 15 now. And, you know, she only spoke English when we moved here and now she's fully, you know, cross-lingual in both German and English. And so she's a lot of American California girl, but she's, you know, she's lived most of her formative years here in Germany. So that's shaped us in, I don't know, so many ways small, silly ways. Like we go back to the U S and we, we find it funny that if we try to order Sprudelwasser in a restaurant, they're like, eh, <laughs> so, you know, little things and big things. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, I find it very um, interesting that you mentioned um, motivation in this context, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe what does, um, yeah, what does mean intrinsic motivation to you, but also mm -hmm. what would you say was the role of intrinsic motivation that you found your company? It is a great question. And I'm glad that I reread um, your preparation notes beforehand because uh, it gave me a few minutes to think about this. In fact, I don't know if I believe in intrinsic motivation. And I'll tell you why. One of the things I've learned over this process in the last few years of, of really diving into um, what it means to be a leader, um, who we are as people. One of the foundational aspects of the, of the coaching and the consulting that I provide is around understanding what each person's unconscious motivators are, because this is what really drives our behavior. So when our unconscious motivators are being met, we have a tendency to show up as the highest and best form of ourself. When our unconscious motivators are not being met, in a completely automatic and unconscious way, we will probably show up in the less, the lesser version of ourselves, or what Carl Jung calls the shadow version of ourselves. Part of our job, I think, as being people on this planet and our human experience is to get to understand that about ourselves so that we can more skillfully show up as the best version of ourselves as often as possible. That's, that's what I believe, and that's what I've observed. And as I've come to really understand a lot more about this idea of unconscious motivators, this is why I'm not sure that intrinsic motivation really exists. Because what intrinsic motivation suggests is that we do things simply for the joy or the pleasure of doing that thing. And I, I, think, you can, I think you can grow to that, but I really don't think most people do that. I think there is an underlying motivator that is not known to most people, um, that is part of the process that I help them discover that is behind all of those decisions. So let me use myself as an example. I'll just be totally open. 
um, my decision, our decision to move to Germany. One could think that this on, from the outside looks as maybe an intrinsically motivated event. Like I think being an expat in, in another country, it, that sounds like something super exciting and I want to do it for the sake of doing that. But really my motivator was around um, being successful and wanting to achieve things. This was a great career opportunity for me. This was something that could take me in directions that my previous roles may not have. And so for me, what I know about myself is my two unconscious motivators is I am motivated by the desire to be needed and appreciated, which means I like to be helpful to people. I like to um, support people. I like people to feel that the things that I'm doing are of value. And I want to be successful and achieve things, which means that I'm a go-getter. I'm a person who likes to get stuff done. I'm very driven. I'm very career motivated, et cetera. So whenever I do something, even if it's just for fun, probably one of those two motivators is coming into play. And I think that's true for most people. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or, or drives more questions, but I, I think that there are really these unconscious motivators that people don't see about themselves, that that's part of my job and part of, you know, building open areas to help people see that um, because when we become aware of it, then we can choose differently. So if I'm, I'm, I'm clear on what I'm motivated by, I can observe when I'm not, when those motivators aren't being satisfied and I can more skillfully approach situations and know, okay, I'm behaving this way because this motivator is not being met. Somebody's not appreciating me or somebody's not letting me get my thing done, you know? So anyway, <laughs> that was a long answer, but it comes down to, that's what I think is really what motivates people. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, and I think it adds a really interesting um, yeah, perspective on it, right? Um, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying mm -hmm. to summarize it in a few words, right? Sure. So intrinsic motivation seems like to be the, the surface mm -hmm. and uh, unconscious motivators are, yeah, they're really deep, yeah, the, 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 the deep drivers. Exactly. Right. You have it exactly correct. So could it then also be that, for example, when I think my actions are driven based on my intrinsic motivation of X, Y, Z, that I would like that this is the reason and maybe also pushing the unconscious motivators away. Yes, exactly. Because maybe those unconscious motivators are uncomfortable. Maybe you don't want to admit that that's really what's driving the behavior, right? So I, one of the examples I use um, that comes from this um, uh, methodology that I use for the unconscious motivators um, is that imagine we're all sitting, you know, there's, there are nine different unconscious motivators. And imagine we have nine people sitting around a conference table who each have one of these motivators. If there's a bottle of water sitting on the edge of the desk, that's about to fall over. Each one of those nine people might reach for it to move the glass. So the behavior, the action is exactly the same. The reason they moved it is different. So each person will have a different why for, for why they moved it. And in my case, so to be needed and appreciated or to be successful and achieve things, the first, the to be needed and appreciated, I might move it because um, I want to move it closer to the person sitting next to me because I think they look thirsty. And if they are thirsty and they take a drink, they're going to appreciate my gesture. 
they're going to say, oh, that was really nice of you, Gretchen. Thank you for offering me that glass of water, right? So that's one motivator why I might move it. The other motivator why I might move it is that as a person who wants to be successful and achieve things, we're in a meeting. We have a lot of things to get through. The agenda is very clear. If that bottle of water falls on the ground, it's going to derail what we're trying to get done. That's going to slow us down. We're not going to be able to get the things done that we want to get done, right? So these are the two things that can play in my mind and in my behavior as to why I would move that bottle. So there's no intrinsic motivation there. It's not like just because for the sake of moving it, there's always a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems like that I have to rethink my why in my one pager or to rethink why I started the podcast. <laughs> How about we take that offline and I can work with you and tell, help you understand what your unconscious motivators are. And then you will understand your why. It's your deep why. <laughs> Let's take it offline. Of course, of course. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so maybe uh, coming back to, to SAP, right? So you, you were there for probably eight years and you mm -hmm. built your legacy, I would say. Mm -hmm. Why did you start basically at SAP? I mean, you mentioned that the company you were starting was uh, acquired, but yes. how was the, the change for you then? And also how or why were you for a long tenure there? That's a good question. So, um, so yes, the company was acquired. And, and to be honest, I, I moved here, we moved here so I could join that company, Hybris. And um, the acquisition was exciting. I also was a little bit, um, it was bittersweet because I wish I could have experienced this, you know, really special culture of that company um, for a bit longer. Um, so it was a little bit short lived in, in how I felt at the time. Um, but at the same time, the experience of becoming a part of, of a massive organization like SAP was so educational and um, really offered a lot of different types of opportunities, um, both in exposure, career growth, tasks, you know, roles. Um, I, I really spent a lot of time helping out with mergers and acquisitions. So because I'd been a part of the post-merger acquisition team with Hybris, when Hybris was acquired on the acquiree side, um, when we went forward and acquired other companies in our customer experience line, um, I was an active part in the SAP side of acquiring because I had empathy for what they were going through. I could understand, you know, this is a much bigger company. We're getting you as a smaller company. Here are some of the things you need to know. And, and what SAP did well is they realized that this acquisition process became easier when you put people who were recently acquired as a part of the acquisition post-merger acquisition team because when you have you know a whole post-merger acquisition team that's bigger than the company that you acquired with people who have been 15 years in SAP it's a bit intimidating and you're like what culture shock so we were able to really serve as a bridge in between the two still having a bit of our own um culture maintained as well um And I stayed because I just had so many different great opportunities to to build new teams and to tackle different um, initiatives and projects. And, you know, and candidly, we were here in Munich and I wasn't sure if I really was interested in trying to find anything else. Nothing, nothing seemed, you know, there was no there was no there was no pull in any other direction. And, and as I kind of told you at the start of the call. Um, a lot of my career has been this unfolding of opportunity. And, and as long as there was opportunity unfolding, it was interesting. Um, I came to 
you know, 2019 and, and felt I did, did some periods of self-reflection and felt that I had come to the end of that journey. There were some organizational changes ahead as is constant at larger organizations. And I, and I, and I did this with every big organizational change. And I always encouraged my team to do it as well Is when you go through these big changes inside a company, any company, any career, you have to sort of sit with yourself and ask, am I ready and willing to re-enlist for whatever this is? So you think about it like the military, am I willing to re-enlist, recommit myself to this new thing? Because all of these changes represent a new thing. And unless you go into it, understanding that it's a new thing, you're always going to be trying to be in the old thing. And, and that's not healthy. It's not productive. It's not the best thing for the business. It's not the best thing for you. So when you go through these moments of change, you have to decide for yourself, am I in? And if I'm in, I have to be in a hundred percent or am I out? And there's no, there's no halfway. You can't really do it halfway. When people try, that's when people, you know, show up, not in the best version of themselves. It's when people are unproductive. It's when things break down inside the organization and, and it's not, it's not great and it's no fun to be there. So I always would ask my team as well, we're going through this big change. Are you in hundred percent or are you out? Either way is fine. There's no judgment, no hard feelings, no, you know, nothing. You just have to know it really in your heart, in or out. And we came to this point of this organizational change and I'd been there a long time. I wasn't unhappy. Um, but I really realized that I was not in a hundred percent. I, and I couldn't explain why yet at that point in time, but I really, I, I wasn't. And, and so I made the decision to move on. And, um, and that's also when I realized as I was leaving the business, you know, so much had changed. I had done so many things, had so many initiatives, lots of success. But at the end of the day, the only successes that were really, really, really lasting was the impact that I had on people and their lives and their careers and their trajectories. And it wasn't just the people in my team, but people in partner teams who I mentored or just who got to, you know, sort of as an adopted member of my team participate I realized that was the impact that I had. That was the most important thing that I did while I was there. And, and that's what really got me on this path of, of, of finding my own business to help leaders cultivate that for themselves and for their teams. Um, because that's really what it's all about. You know, we're here to make money. We're you know trying to drive the business forward and create good outcomes, but we do that by creating these like, magical experiences where people are really motivated to bring everything that they can to a situation in a positive and constructive way, not burnout, not any of those things, but really show up with them, their whole self. Right? So yeah. that's, that's, that's why I'm here now. <laughs> that's my purpose. That's great. And we are coming uh, back to that uh, promise. Um, but two things I would like uh, to, to yeah. highlight on what, what you just mentioned. The first thing, so at least for me, this is something which is a game changer when it comes mm -hmm. to leadership, right? So, for example, what you just um, yeah, told us um, when there was uh, in the organization a, a reorganization or change um, or whatsoever, you you really encouraged um, your team to sit and self-reflect if they are 100% in or even if they, they are out. Yeah. And I think this encouragement, this empowerment part to really 
that they have the feeling that they are worth, I, maybe it's not the right wording, but that they are mm -hmm. worth something, right? So that they are not just a number, yes. but they are, yeah, I think this is inspiring, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that, they're, that they have value, that they bring value, but they also have to be conscious of bringing the value, right? You can't just show up and, you know, phone it in. And that's what a lot of times people spend too much time in one place. It's re gets really easy to just phone it in and to, you know, bring your B or C game most of the time. And, and that's not good for them. It's not good for the business. It's not good for anyone. And so you really have to be, are you willing to, to do it wholeheartedly. Okay, then let's do it. But if not, that's okay too. Like I'll help you find something else. There's no judgment. It's, and I had to do that you know, on a number of occasions, people really either they could self-reflect enough and admit that they were ready to do something different, or maybe they couldn't self-reflect, but I could see it that they really weren't all in. And at that point, you know, it becomes a how do we find you something that's going to be a little bit more aligned with your where your heart's at, you know? Yeah. And I think that the difference here is also that so that the people um are taking it or such such situations. So I haven't yeah. been there yet so far, so I don't have the experience, but I think or at least those are my thoughts um, that the difference is that they are not taking it personally. That's right. They still remind themselves it's a business. It's a business mm -hmm. decision without, as you mentioned, hard feelings. Yes. It is what it is. And yes. moving on, right? Yeah. 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 And therein lies the paradox, you know, that you mentioned that it, uh, they don't have to take it personally. And yet I do believe business is personal. So, you know, it's, mm. it's an interesting point that you raise. I, uh, the the reason why I believe business is personal is is not that we should take business decisions personally. Um, it's more that businesses need to embrace the fact that humans are the ones who are most of the time. There's a lot of AI at the moment, but um, where humans are involved, humanity is involved, and each person, you know, brings something unique and special and. Um, difficult, complicated, messy, everybody brings that to what they do every day. And we have to be conscious of that. We have to support that. We have to, you know, sometimes tough love that we have, you know, but, but all of it is that these are people. And, um, and also so many of my life experiences are directly tied to jobs that I have had or roles that I have played or people I've met or encountered through these um, really interesting career experiences in my portfolio of career that I have had. And I wouldn't have had those if I didn't have those, those experiences. And so it's, it's hard. I think it's, it's disingenuous to say it's just a business decision and these are just jobs because we, We engage with people every day, whether it's customers or coworkers or um, partners. These are all people, and we're people, and those are interesting and important relationships that we build. So that's why I think it's personal. Yeah, and you know this, I think adds really great on the other. So the second point, I didn't forget it. The second mm -hmm. point, what you made, right? Um, where, where you told us the example of um, that, so that you have been on the acquisition team, right? Mm -hmm. So that you were building the bridge between um, SAP at this time and mm -hmm. also the new or the acquired company. Yes. And what I think is that 
empathy, what you also mentioned is, I mean, this is what makes it, yes, for the acquired company and, and the people basically mm -hmm. um, easier uh, to deal yeah. with this with this situa situation, but mm -hmm. also um, to to be felt like that they are seen as humans, right? That yes. they are not just a company who, which is uh, acquired and just um, a headcount is moving from A to B. Exactly. But it's basically about the, the person. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it also, it, it bridges the other way as well, right? Because the acquired company can dehumanize the people on the other side as being a part of this machine. And in fact, we use that term a lot in these big organizations, the machine, right? It's, it's literally a dehumanization of the collection of individuals who make up that machine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're in the acquire, and I was guilty of this too. So like, I'm not saying it from a pedestal of I was perfect. I didn't do any of that. I did. And that's also what made it probably easier for me to bridge the gap because I could say, look, I've been where you have. I've felt the things that you felt. I've looked at this post-merger acquisition team of 45 people and thought, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. You people have no connection to what we do, right? And, and because I had been in that position, I could help them dehumanize the other folks less as well to say, Hey, look, these are also people, you know, a lot of the post-merger acquisition, you may say, okay, they've been with SAP for 14 years, but they were actually with business objects beforehand. They were also acquired. It was a long time ago, but they were also acquired. And, you know, so helping them see the humanity on the other side, um, you know, from the acquiree direction as well um, was, was really important. And yeah, it is about empathy. I think we have to connect those experiences to make the, make the world run better. <laughs> yeah. And no, and then coming back to, to Opinari, right. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you, you have been, yeah, plus minus seven months now with, mm -hmm. with an entrepreneurship uh, journey adventure. Yes. How, how do you feel? What, what kind of summary? I'm really good um, now, but I will I will tell you honestly. You know, um, somebody shared with me not too long ago this rule of thirds, in that you know um, uh, there's an Olympian who had a coach, and her coach said, "Look, you know, you're going to feel good a third of the time. You're going to feel okay a third of the time. You're going to feel absolutely crappy a third of the time. And this is the case when you're working toward an important goal." As long as those three things are more or less in balance, you're doing okay. But, you know, if it gets out of whack in any one direction, like if you are feeling good all the time, then the chances are you're not working hard enough and you're not growing and you're not learning and all of these things. On the flip side, if you're feeling crappy all of the time, chances are something's not working right. You have to look at, you know, it's kind of like I said, when we moved over here, if there were obstacles like all along the way, if every day that we thought about moving was a bad one, then it was probably not the right decision. So it's the same way with entrepreneurship. I would say it's a third, a third, a third. Some days I'm on top of the moon. It's the best thing ever. I love it. Some days are hard, you know bureaucracy of you know finding a company in germany is not easy you know taxes and you know all of these things it's just a part of the business um you know so yeah and some days are just they're just fine and that's absolutely okay so um so yeah i, I try to keep that in mind from now on is when i have you know when i'm having a harder day for whatever reason things just don't feel like they're working i have to 
slap myself across the face a little bit and say, okay, well, you know, this is one of those a third down days and there will be a day tomorrow that's probably okay. And the next one will probably be fantastic. So that's okay. <laughs> no, that, that, um, that's great to hear. And I think also, um, yeah, um, accept, accept the situation or the journey, how it is. I think that's also something which uh, yes. is kind of critical um, to, to last in the long run, right? Yes, but, absolutely. Um, so so I'm, I didn't... So I wasn't aware of this one third, one third, one third uh, theory. Mm -hmm. My question would have been: How would you describe the yeah, mental health roller coaster, kind of? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily a roller coaster. I don't know. I guess maybe there are some points, but when you look, um, like when you look at a graph that's like this, you know, if you even it out, it's 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 more or less a a decent straight line as opposed to these. Um, I don't know if I feel it's a roller coaster. I don't know if it's mental health roller coaster, but it's it certainly has its ups and downs, more maybe like undulating bumps. Um, and and I think it's you just have to remember why you're in it. For any entrepreneur, I think whether they're you know building some kind of um, you know cutting edge tech or they're doing something like I am, which is with you know consulting and and coaching to help people be the best versions of themselves. You know it's you have to remember why you're doing it. So on the days that are harder, it's about realizing that the whole reason I got into this business was to help people and, and to help make the world a better place, one person at a time as, and one business is at a time. And as long as I'm doing that, that's, and that's aligned with the reason I set out on this adventure, then it's all fine. And so it's remembering that some of those mundane tasks are all, also in the service of this higher goal and if it's not then i shouldn't be doing it <laughs> so yeah true true but how how did you feel when you yeah signed the paper with, with the notar i don't know if that's the correct word but how did you feel when the company in that moment it? it was exciting it was um yeah i would say it was exciting it was like wow okay i did this but then I would tell you, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of like before the call, we had a little just quick conversation about your wedding or saying you take a moment to just appreciate the, the grandeur. So I did when I signed the paperwork, it was like, wow, this is a moment. This is a milestone. It's super exciting and interesting. This is the thing that I've founded. And however, it's one tiny moment in, in the whole grand scheme of things of the life of this organization. And so, you know, post that moment, there were many, many, many other moments, some of them harder, some of them easier that sort of accumulate to make the business what it is. And that one moment was certainly necessary and it was, it was important. Um, but I would say there were, there've been just as many important, um, events all along the way since that point in the journey it was really like almost if you're on a like if you're on a, a a road trip for example and you're going multiple locations that was the first stop on the journey that was like okay this vacation's getting started yes but there's still a lot of road trip ahead <laughs> yeah and, and you're talking um about um yeah up and downs right kind mm -hmm. of but 
I'm wondering, did you did you have a moment where you really had self doubt? And if, how did you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I think there everybody does. Um, so I would be lying if I said I didn't. Um, and I think it comes where you question a little bit. Okay, is this the right thing at this moment in time? Um, do I have you know, do I have all of the skills needed to do it? Um, it's just totally natural to have these questions and these moments where you ask that. Um, I would say what I do to overcome it, I lean on my family a lot. Um, you know, they're a huge support system for me. They, they see my blind spots. They see my shadow. They can tell me when I'm being ridiculous, which, you know, sometimes we are like, our brain does funny things. You know, I, I like to say, don't believe everything you think. And sometimes it's easy when you're in that moment to believe everything you think. And, you know, so it's great to have people around you who will, like I said, slap you upside the head a little bit, not physically, metaphorically to tell you, you know, you're being silly. And, um, and so I think, you know, my family is certainly a huge source of support and inspiration and reality checking for me. Um, walking in nature, like just getting outside. Sometimes, you know, you sit in one spot, you can start to let your mind, you know, run away and, and tell you stories that are not true. And I find that when I go for a walk in nature, it's, it's just changes everything almost instantly. It's, I, you know, it's like getting a shot of medicine, you know, right away. And uh, funny, just a funny story is that I live very near um, Forest Cemetery here in Munich, Waldfriedhof. And that's one of my favorite places to go walking. And, and some people think it's so funny. They're like, you go walking in a cemetery. And I don't, if you've never been there, you should, it's beautiful. Um, the thing is, it's an absolutely gorgeous cemetery that's in a forest and it's not like most cemeteries. But the reason it's so unique is that I find myself walking among people who are no longer living. Um, and it, it puts life in perspective, right? Each one of these people had a life on this planet for however long or short it was. And, and I'm here only for a finite period of time as well. So do I want to waste my time worrying about these, you know, things that my mind is telling me that causes me to doubt it? Or do I want to carry on and get busy with the thing that I know that I can make an impact on? And, and it's kind of that reality check, like, okay, well, I'm still here. I'm above ground. I'm not below the ground. That is a good thing. So keep moving. <laughs> Stop <Yeah>. whining. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can uh, relate to to what to what you say. For me, it's kind of the same. Um, yeah. I think it it grounds someone mm -hmm. uh, being on a set set summary, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's a good thing. So I haven't been there yet, but uh, yeah, That's I will. <laughs> and by the way, Michaela Enda, who wrote the Never Ending Story, which is a great book that has a lot of beautiful nuggets about you know purpose and. Um, and journeys uh he's buried there so you can go see his grave and in, in we'll take it with me <laughs> yes. but uh, yeah t t tell us a little bit about the openary method absolutely yes yes so the openary method is is really three things that come together um the first i mentioned is unconscious motivators i work with a company uh called paul hertz group and they have a, a 
proven the last 30 years methodology for helping to uncover the unconscious motivator. So this is a tool that I use. We get the profile for each of the individuals that I work with, and it helps people become aware of these motivators, become aware of who they are when they're at their best, who they are when they're not, what are the things that trigger them um, so that we can start to form a strategy for for showing up as your best self every day as much as possible, knowing that there are going to be days, there are going to be moments, there are going to be um, events that drive us to not be our best self. But we have a choice. Once we're conscious of this, we have a choice to make and we can choose differently. So that's one of the, the pillars of the open learning method. The second is that I work with um, the field of somatics, which is is really getting into the body as well and understanding that our bodies are the sum total of our lived experiences as well. Every cell, every tissue, every experience that we have, we had in our body, right? And so a lot of the times, most of us are fairly disconnected from that. We might, you know, we run or we exercise and so we feel like we're connected to our body, but we don't always connect our behaviors to how we carry ourselves or the felt experiences that we have in our bodies. And so one of the aspects of the open RE method is that we connect physical experiences, embodied experiences, how we carry ourselves, physical reactions or responses to situations. And we connect that to these unconscious motivators. We connect it to the behaviors. And I'll give you an example. So let's say I'm at work. And I get an email from my boss and my boss is micro has a tendency to micromanage me. And I know through my unconscious motivators that uh, micromanaging is one of the things that tends to trigger me that I feel uncomfortable or I really don't like it when people micromanage me. What, what we start to do in the somatic side is help the people tap into what they're feeling physically in that moment when they get that email, because our physical response to situations can be an early warning system for what behavior might come after. So if we accept that when we're triggered or when an unconscious motivator is not being met, that we might show up in the least good version of ourselves, those are specific sets of behaviors. If we can connect the physical reaction to those two things, then we can get ahead of the behavioral response. So in that situation, I get an email from my boss who likes to micromanage or she likes to micromanage me. And it says, need an update on blah, blah, blah. And I know that this is something that bothers me. I can start to feel like, okay, what do I feel in my body? Do I feel my heart racing? Do I feel my breath getting shallow? Do I feel my face getting flushed? Do I feel hot or cold? Or, you know, what are the physical sensations that come when I get that email? Like I, you know, I remember some situations I would get an email from my boss, certain subject line, I'd feel my heart rate raise. I'd start feeling weak in my extremities, you know, and, and it wasn't even super stressful, but I was having literally a fight or flight response to that event. And so once I started to become aware of the physical response, which lasts about 15 to 90 seconds, it's a completely physiological response. You have no control over it. But it's going to burn itself out after about 90 seconds. And then after that, our mind takes over. And then we start adding story. We start adding um, assumptions. We start adding our interpretations of that event. And then my behavior might show up as, well, you know, 
he's always doesn't trust me or, you know, all of these things. Right. So I went through that physical experience, but I went through it so fast and I wasn't aware of it that I just went straight into the reaction. And so the idea of the somatics is if people can get connected to physical response, that becomes a signpost. Hey, a uh, trigger alert, um, you know, physical response happening, behavior might be coming. You could choose differently. You can say, okay, you know what? I feel this happening. I'm going to take three conscious breaths. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to do whatever these things are that can help me short circuit that behavior, which is unproductive, which is exaggerated, which is disproportionate, what have you. And then I can choose to respond differently. But if we just let ourselves get carried away on that, that sort of tidal wave of activity, we're going to respond and, you know, we're going to be mad. We're going to hit send and then we're going to regret it or, you know, all those things that happen. So the whole idea behind the somatics is get the body connected. And um, so that's the second thing. It was a long way to explain it. That was the second thing. The third thing is, okay, great. So now that we know that we know our behaviors, we know our physical responses, what do we do about it? And so the third element is really bringing in a lot of research in the latest in neuroscience and how behavioral change happens in order to be able to put in place tools, skills, you know, necessary things that can help us be better at showing up. So a silly example, I, I read not too long ago that petting a dog. So just like, you know, if you have a dog or somebody else has a dog and you pet this dog for 15 to 30 seconds, this kicks off your parasympathetic nervous system, which means you're triggering positive hormonal response in your body. Those are things that help you feel good. So if you're feeling stressed, pet a dog for 15 to 30 seconds, maybe even more, but you literally physiologically and neurologically hacked your system to drive positive hormones into your body. So it's like understanding, okay, what are these little things that we can do based on all of the new things we're learning about the brain and, um, and neuroscience and the connection between our emotions um, to help people change in a more sustainable way. So that's the open RA method is the unconscious motivators, somatics with the physicality and then the neuroscience of how we change. Yeah, no, this is really um, insightful. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that also having the ability to, yeah, be self-aware is kind mm. of also kind of a key here, isn't it? Absolutely. That's that's the first step in understanding the unconscious motivators is that most people don't know these things about themselves. I mean, why would you? We don't learn this when we're growing up unless you have, I don't know, parents who are psychologists or, you know, in, in fields that are related to this. We don't know this about ourselves. We just, you know, our unconscious motivators are actually set when we're about five or six. And it's basically, you know, beyond your needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, your needs for food, shelter, connection, belonging. What do you need to function? What do you need to feel fulfilled? What do you need to show up and, um, and to do things that you need to do? And that's what these unconscious motivators are. And so if you think back to your childhood, once you know what these unconscious motivators, you can think, hmm, okay, that's how, that's how I got approval. That's how I got, you know, the good job from my parent or, you know, my teacher was doing these types of things or being perceived these ways. And, and, you know, and that's, that's where that self-awareness starts is when you can start to recognize that these were the drivers behind a lot of your behaviors through your life. 
it gives you a much better vantage point for understanding why you behave the way that you do. Yeah. And how does the opinary method support leaders? So I think leadership roles are one of the most, it's like being a parent. It's one of the most important jobs you can do because you, you are responsible for the lives of other people, whether you like it or not. That is, that is really the fundamental role of a leader. There are people who look to you for support, guidance, care, um, career growth, job security, you know, all of these things, they, they are your responsibility. And in order to be a good leader, you have to be able to manage these things yourself or else you transfer all your own dysfunction onto other people. It's just like parenting. If you're, you know, if you're not a self-aware parent, you're, and you're living in an unconscious way, you're transferring all of your unconscious baggage over to your kids. And that's, You know, unfortunately, that's life. That's what happens. <laughs> but, but as leaders, if we can become more skillful, if we can become more aware of, of what drives us and how we show up, we can choose and we can show up as the best versions of ourselves. Why is that important to the people that work for us? Well, A, we're going to be more empathetic. We're going to be kinder. We're going to be compassionate. We're going to have their interests at heart. We're going to help them. You know, all of these things that encompass being our best selves, but also the open R method is helpful for leaders because I work with teams as well. And so what leaders can understand when I also work with their teams is they can know what are the unconscious motivators of every person on their team. So as a leader, this is a superpower. If I can understand that Paula, is, and these are made up names. I never had anybody reporting to me named Paula. If Paula is motivated by wanting to be seen as knowledgeable and smart, and Fred is motivated by wanting things to be peaceful and harmonious, I have to lead them differently. I have to yeah. communicate with them differently. I have to maybe have them in different roles than they're in if that particular role doesn't work for them. So it gives you that insight into how they're motivated, but also why they behave the way that they do. So if you have somebody in your team who frequently disengages, like they just, you know, they get stressed and they just pull away. Well, understanding why that is, is helpful. Maybe they're pulling away because They don't feel secure. There's too much change going on. One of their motivators is to have safety and security. When they don't feel that that's there, they just retreat like a turtle into its shell. Well, if you understand that about them, you can be more conscious at helping them understand, you know, what is safe and secure, what is known, and also to give voice to their concerns about things that are uncertain, because a lot is uncertain. And so how do you help them become more skillful and um, adaptable to uncertain environments because that's something you can help them grow with, right? So as a leader, I can understand that this about myself, but then when I understand this about all of the people in my team, I can lead them better as individuals because every person in front of us is a unique individual, you know, that's, and we have to treat them as such. We can't just treat them all the same. Yeah. No, uh, Definitely, I, I uh, yeah I agree with you uh, totally, and I'm I'm wondering you know when for example when when there is an interview for leadership role and then mm -hmm. there's usually kind of kind of the uh, question coming up from the recruiter or from the manager 
What is your leadership style? Mm. Is that kind of leading in the wrong wrong direction then? Say that one more time. Yeah. So, so for example, we have an interview situation, right? Mm -hmm. And the manager asks the candidate, um, what is your leadership style? Yeah. Based on what you just said, it seems that this question is leading in a wrong direction. I don't know if it's leading in a wrong direction. There may be better questions to ask. I mean, in a perfect world, honestly, in a perfect world, every company would have somebody do their print before they interviewed them so they could ask the right questions. That That is a perfect world. It, you know, it's hard to get there. But, um, you know, I think understanding the leadership style, people can answer the question in a very crafted way uh, and sometimes in an inauthentic way. Hopefully, most people answer it truthfully. Um, but I think a better question or a different question that's maybe more um, insightful is who are you when you're stressed? Like who, who do you become under the greatest of pressure? What happens? You know, and see if you can give, have people give you examples of that. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I was interviewing uh, a gentleman for a leadership position on my team years and years ago. And he was traveling from overseas to come for this interview. And um, he ended up being late for the interview. And, and I'm fine. I, I'm not like, you have to be on time or, you know, everything's out the window. That's not the issue. Um, but when he got there, he was late and he was very apologetic. But after apologizing for his, his tardiness, what What followed that was a unfiltered, somewhat unconscious explanation of why he was late because he was stressed. So I was able to see who he was when he was stressed and who he became when he was stressed was he was blaming the taxi driver. He was demeaning to the taxi driver. He said, this stupid taxi driver didn't know where to take me, da, 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 all these things, you know, and he was, he was not composed. He was not, he was not um, his higher self because he felt really stressed for having been to this important job interview late. I couldn't have architected a better test of who he was when he was stressed, right? Because he showed me exactly in this moment who he was and when he was stressed. Now, does that mean that he's always that way when he's stressed? No. Um, but at least some of the time, you know, when the pressure's on and, and the stakes are high, that's what happened. And, you know, and then the rest of the interview was great and a lot of things were fine. But for me, this was a real red flag because I, you know, I frequently observe people in stressful situations and, and everybody has a hard time showing up as the best version of themselves. Um, but what I don't tolerate as a leader is, is blaming and demeaning and lack of respect to other people and throwing people under the bus. And I thought to myself, hmm, how quickly might you do that with your peers if you were made to look bad for some reason, you know? And, and so I think looking into who we become when we're stressed is, is one aspect. Um, and you can flip it around just to not all be negative, but Who are you when you're at your best? Like when you're absolutely in the flow of things and when everything is going super well, what does that look like for you? And, and why do you think you are that way? You know, that, that might be how I would take it. Yeah, no, no, um, definitely. And uh, I'm also with you um, that it's about the questions and the preparation up, uh, up front. Yeah. For example, if uh, 
made an experience once uh, when I was uh, also in a job interview. Mm-hmm. And I had the feeling that it was basically, yeah, the questions I did receive were not tailored to my experience. Right. And then I did get a rejection based on, yeah, you are too junior or whatsoever, right? But right. Basically, they didn't qualify me basically as a person, but also with my experience. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's about the questions. Uh, for sure. reading from a script. And, and I think, you know, that's one thing I learned very early on in my career from my very first leader that I had is, and, and from the very first time she interviewed me, was that it was about having a conversation, right? Yes, there are some things that I need to know and there are some specifics, but, but it's about getting to know the person, to understand and to, and to view the person in front of you as unique and to view that particular conversation as unique and, and to just let the conversation unfold in a way that allows you to see who that person is. Um, and if they're a fit for the role, if they're a fit for the organization, if they're a fit for the team, um, you know, that's what's important in my mind, you know, and, and that's how I approached interviews always was let's just have a conversation. And I would find out the most amazing things in these conversations, you know, found out one time, this young lady who was very keen to understand the vacation policy. And, um, and I was like, okay, well, this is the policy. And, oh, that's less than a, that's a few days less than what I have at my current job. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> is that possible to change that? Not for one person. No. Um, unfortunately that, that is, you know, that's the policy and okay. I said, well, it sounds like that extra three days is very, very important to you. And I would say if that is your most important criteria, then you should stay where you're at because it sounds like you got a pretty good deal, <laughs> you know? So stay there. I mean, that, that's, that's the thing you want. Then you've got a good situation, you know? And, and so it was interesting. And then from my perspective, what it told me about this candidate is that there was not a lot of flexibility there. Like there, there was, there was this um, opposite of growth mindset, fixed mindset, where it had to be just this way, and and that was their view of the world, and that's fine. But that's not what I needed in my team. I needed people who had growth mindset, you know. So it's just some of these little, you know, having these little natural conversations, you learn things about people that I think can tell you what you need to know. Yeah. No, uh, this was a great example. Thank you for sharing. Um, maybe last question regarding uh, leadership in this context. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think about the role of emotional intelligence? Oh, I think it's absolutely critical. It's, you know, it, it links all of the things that matter in leadership, which is, you know, am I aware of my own emotions? Am I aware of my own behaviors that result from those feelings? Um, do I have the skills necessary to do something productive with it? Um, because a lot of times when we're not our best self, it's it's a dysregulated or a um, distorted experience of an emotion and we respond inappropriately. Um, and so having that understanding, having that self-awareness is, is absolutely critical to be a good leader. But I also think it's critical to be a good employee. I think it's critical to be a good human being period. Like it's just show up that way. Right. And, but I think also as a leader, it's having that capacity to understand other people's experiences 
also. We don't have to have lived that experience. Like, so in the case of this post-merger acquisition, was it better that I had been through it? Yes, absolutely. Because it made it easy. The, the, the empathy part was easy because I had been through it. But really skilled, emotionally intelligent people can have that level of empathy absent a shared experience, right? And that's where it really becomes important because let's say you have an employee on your team who's underperforming um, and you find out that they're underperforming because they have a parent who has cancer and is dying. Okay, this happens all the time. It's life. It is absolutely life. Do I have to have had a parent who has had cancer and is dying in order to be able to have empathy with them? No, I don't. But a high degree of emotional intelligence will allow me to understand that this is a difficult period of time that they're going through to have compassion, to, to, um, to communicate in a way that, um, is helpful to them to check my own behavior and emotion a little bit more when I'm engaging, you know, so it's that level of skillfulness, I would say, in terms of how we interact with other people. Um, so it's critical for leaders, but I think it's critical for everybody. <laughs> we leave it here. Um, maybe last question. Um, we are also almost uh, at the end of our conversation. Mm -hmm. Self-awareness, self-reflection, mental health, recharging, purpose. Buzzword bingo or what? No, I really don't think they're buzzword bingo. I mean, we can... You can reduce almost any kind of words like this down to lingo or, um, uh, you know, buzzword bingo if you want. At the end of the day, though, each one of them is so important. So, like I said, self-awareness in order to show up the right way in the world to be of the highest service, to help people, to, you know, create a better world around us. We have to be self-aware, um, you know, and the same goes with um, uh, mental health. I The, the example I mentioned of, of somebody who has a parent who's dying of cancer, this affects how we show up in the world and we have to care for other people. We have to understand that those are very real experiences that people are having and, and looking. And that's why, you know, coming back to humans being, you know, what run businesses, every person has experiences that we don't see. And we have to be able to, you know, meet those with empathy, with compassion, and, and to create an environment where people can take care of themselves. Because at the end of the day, when we show up in the world with our tanks depleted, with our mental health out of order, with um, not being the best version of ourselves, the, the most problematic outcome is that we impact other people in a negative way, right? So if we continue that chain reaction. If I show up in a poor way, if I'm mean or rude, you know, chances are that's going to set somebody else into a, a bad state of being for themselves. And they're going to go off and carry that into their interactions. And it creates this vicious cycle, whereas showing up in the world in a great way is creates a virtuous one. And um, so I think we have to care for people's mental health because they're not going to show up as the best version of themselves if we're not looking after that. Um, it's it's just important. We're we're all human beings after all. So let's close it here. Uh, nothing better to say at the end. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and also for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And, uh, hope to see it's you soon. It's been my pleasure, and I'm really glad we were finally able to do it. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, let's uh, try to find a good uh, cup of coffee in Munich uh, one day. And uh, 
hope to see you soon. Thank you for your time, Gretchen. Thank you very much. Take care.